Good morning, ladies. Isn't it beautiful weather we're having? You understand that four days ago, I was sitting on a plane on the tarmac at LaGuardia Airport. As I watched them de-ice our, our wings for the fourth time, waiting to take off, I wondered if I'd even be here this morning. And some of the people that flew with us, they are actually getting back this morning. So I was one of the very blessed ones that made it in. They're still waiting on flights to get out of that place. My name is Vanita Jones, and I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And I also want to say hello to all the women at West Campus, because they're joining us as we study Acts. This exciting thrill ride. Deb told us, she warned us from the very beginning, this was not going to be a calm, laid-back study. It was going to be action-packed, a thrill ride, and I think it's, it's, being, it's exactly that thing. We're seeing that, and I'm sure, I hope that you saw this week, that we're studying about sharing in this part of Acts, about giving and sharing with others. In fact, I thought it was such a foundation for sharing that I named our lesson today, Sharing 101, the basics of sharing. Starting at the very beginning, where it should start, within the church, with other believers, and sharing outside the church as we take the gospel of Christ to a lost world, what that should look like and what it shouldn't look like, what to do and what not to do. You know, for me, sharing never came easy. Now, I blame that not only on sin nature, but I was raised with brothers. And I don't know if anybody out there, out there was raised with just brothers, but nothing is sacred of yours. If you understand what I'm talking about, if you're raised with brothers and you have no other girls in the house except your mother, they're always in your stuff. It's like being raised with puppies. <laughs> they smell bad. They roughhouse. They get into your stuff. They destroy your things. Nothing was sacred. My Barbies, they would play target practice with your BB guns. So they always had one arm missing or a leg missing or a foot missing. My bike, my beautiful, beautiful bike that I waited an entire year to get with the handlebars, you know, that came up, the butterfly handlebars and the banana seats. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It was beautiful. They were jumping it over the ditch in the front on a ramp that they had built out of some wood and logs that Dad had behind the barn because they were playing cops and robbers. And that was within six weeks. It was all wobbly. So everything I had, they took and they destroyed it. So quickly, I became this person who did not want to share. But I tell you when it bothered me the most. It's when they stole my food. <laughs> we would be at the table, and Mom and Dad would turn their back to talk or do something, and instantly they'd reach over and grab my food, and they'd either throw it in their mouth or they'd lick it. Because <laughs> they knew if they licked it, I wasn't going to touch that. And, and so I, I started training myself to learn how to look like I loved my Brussels sprouts. And not my mashed potatoes. So they'd steal that yucky stuff and not the good stuff. But they always stole my cake. And I love cake. I, it's, it's my favorite part of any day if there's cake at the end of a meal. And they would steal a morsel of my cake every single time. It would turn into a cage fight with my mother screaming at us to get back in our seats because I would take them to the ground for the cake. But one year on my birthday, my grandmother, who baked all of our cakes, she came to me and she said, Vanita, now what kind of cake do you want for your birthday? And I had a brilliant idea. I looked at my grandmother, I was seven years old, and I said, I want a coconut cake. And she was bewildered by that, because no one in our family likes coconut cake, or never had coconut cake. You see where I'm going with this. 
I didn't know if I liked coconut cake, but I knew this one important fact. My brothers hated coconuts. So my birthday rolls around and this gorgeous, beautiful coconut cake is unveiled. And my grandmother cuts these large slices. And I start to share with my brothers my coconut cake. And they turned their noses up and they walked over to the ice cream and devoured all of it. Leaving the coconut cake for me. See, I had beat the system. I had beat this brotherhood of boys that was always in my stuff. And I thought I was onto something. But you know what? Later in life, God taught me something about sharing. He taught me this very important thing. He taught me that motives play a very important role when it comes to sharing. I want you to jump ahead a few years. And I meet my husband, Cameron. And we're dating. And first thing we learned about each other was that we were almost birthday buddies. May 29th, May 30th. So we always celebrate together. And our first birthday rolls around and his mother is so excited to make our birthday cake because he loves coconut cake too. I mean, I could hear God slapping his knee and Billy laughing because he knew I was going to have to share not only my birthday with my husband, the rest of my married life, but my coconut cake with my husband, which I, by the way, have learned to love coconut cake over the years. You know, we've learned in Acts 4 and 5 that sharing, the motives in our sharing truly do count. And thank goodness that God didn't deal with my pathetic sharing like he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira. He, he waited a few years and he let it sink in. He didn't, he didn't drop me down to the ground immediately. You know, we, you recall a couple of weeks ago we learned that there was a day of the Pentecost, remember, and the followers of Christ received the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. And promptly then, Peter begins to preach boldly about Christ and about the resurrection and, and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the apostles are out healing the sick and the needy. And this church is growing by leaps and bounds. It's exciting and it's action-packed. And the early believers, they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And they're praying and they're asking God for boldness so they can carry his word out to the other people, to unbelievers. And you know, if you look at, uh, at Acts 4.31 the verse right before where we're going to start today, we see that still the case when we open up today. It says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they had were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It was still happening. It was still going on, and it's because they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And do you remember a couple of weeks ago, Lynn taught us what, to, what a church that's empowered by the Holy Spirit actually looks like. She said that a church empowered by the Holy Spirit is not only going to be increasing in numbers, but each person within that church is maturing spiritually as they join together in the pursuit and the purposes of God. And I think part of that maturing spiritually for all of us is learning how to share. And that's what we're going to learn in these first few verses as we open up. I want you to open your Bibles to uh, Acts 4. I want you to follow along as I read the last six verses. I'm going to read 32 through 37. And listen to what Luke says about the early church. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any one of these things, any of the things that belonged to him or was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the great grace was upon them. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were the owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. 
Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Luke opens up our lesson today, and he's going to teach us how to share within the church body. And, and these six verses specifically, specifically are going to tell us how to share. And, and, and then it's even going to show us how it's even possible for a motley group of sinners that have come together in the name of Christ, how it's even possible for them to share. It's not in our sin nature. It wasn't in my sin nature. I didn't want to give up my coconut cake. None of us do. We're not made that way. Because they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They were united. And that unity was not only in their beliefs. It was in everything. It was in their fellowship. It was in their prayer. It was, it was in their giving. It was in their testimony. It was as they worshipped. They were unified. And we see this even a couple, a couple chapters back in Acts 2.42. Look at that verse in your verse sheet. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking the bread and the prayers. These early believers were clearly united. And that unity started with their belief in the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And they believed that they had been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And that is how they were going to be able to share. It was the foundation to all their sharing. Because with that, their natural response was one of gratitude. And it was one of love as they shared their beliefs with each other. And and they shared their testimony of Jesus Christ to encourage each other. And they generously were able to share all their belongings with anyone else among them who was in need. Because they saw them as blessings from God. It wasn't their stuff. It was God's stuff that he had let them use. They were unified and they were unselfish. And being unselfish and unified gave them that courage to give generously with anyone among them who was in need. Because they saw sharing as a blessing, not as a burden. And that's because the church didn't require them to give. It wasn't a requirement. No one said you had to give to the church. But they were being led by the Holy Spirit. And they were motivated by love and gratitude. See, they didn't share like I share when I shared my coconut cake. They didn't share with their own desires and their own wants in mind. See, they shared generously because they loved Christ. And that was their foundation. And we also see that it was obviously a common practice for them to, these early Christians would sell a piece of property and they would give what they had, the proceeds to the apostles, and that would be used in the churches. It was needed. Luke chooses one name. I, I don't think Barnabas was the only one that did this apparently, but he chooses Barnabas for some reason to use as an illustration of how to share. And I think there's a lot more to it than just the fact that he gave uh, proceeds from some land. I think there's more to this guy. He tells us that he was a man named Joseph who was such an encouragement to everyone in the church they nicknamed him Barnabas. See, giving Joseph the nickname Barnabas is like how I've given our new puppy Sadie the nickname Princess Choose a lot. Because <laughs> that's what she does. She chews a lot. And Barnabas, Joseph, he encouraged a lot. That's what he did. So that's what they called him after that. And that's how you see him referred to from now on as as Barnabas. And he also tells us that he's a Levite. And he also tells us he's a native of Cyprus. And it appears to me that he was a very compassionate man, a godly man with a huge, generous heart. 
And although, you know, I think he gets overshadowed, overshadowed later on by baby Paul or some of the other big names we're going to read about, we see that he has a very important ministry in the early church. In fact, so much he's named 25, he's mentioned 25 times in the New Testament. And I think that ministry was his ministry of encouragement. See, we're going to see him later on in Acts because he's encouraging Paul as Paul is out spreading the gospel of Christ. And then we're going to see him later on also in Acts and Colossians. He's encouraging John Mark as he's also, it's his cousin, and he's taking the gospel of Christ out as well. Now, there are a few reasons why he could have used Barnabas here in this lesson, but I personally think that Luke mentions Barnabas here because he gives us that polar opposite of what we're about to going to see in, in the beginning of Acts 5, when, we, when we're introduced to Ananias and Sapphira. He's our clear picture of how to share. And that picture is that foundation that all sharing should be based on. It says that he was unified with the body of Christ in heart and mind. He was motivated by his testimony of Christ's love, and he was grateful for Christ's redemptive work on the cross. And all that together being prompted by the Holy Spirit... He saw a need, and what did he do? He acted on it, and he gave generously to meet those needs. And he was clearly a leader in this and everything else he did because we see that all through Acts, this must have been going on because this church is thriving. They're, they're growing by leaps and bounds. Look, not just numbers, but spiritually. Look on your verse sheet at Acts 2, 46 through 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. And Acts 5.42, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. And as we jump ahead, we're going to find out that it's even going on later on in the church. In Acts 9.31, so the church together, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. And it was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. See, when our sharing went in the church, within the church, is based on this foundation of love for Christ. The body of Christ, that's you and I. We thrive. We grow. Sharing with proper motives, it leads to this physical and the spiritual growth within the body of Christ. And that's us. We're the body of Christ. Now, we know how to share. Bonnevers gives us that perfect picture. And I, I, for some reason, Luke just knows we have to see the opposite, which is a perfect... I'm a very visual person, so it's a perfect pers- thing for me to see it. A good way and a bad way. And it's a very visual way of seeing it because this is a very dramatic opposite to what we just saw. Now, I feel like if we could have been a fly on the wall back in the days of the early church, you know, if we would have been listening in on the fellowship going on in there and they, they would have been talking amongst themselves and we would have heard somebody say the, word, the name Barnabas, I think we would have heard things like, Oh, Barnabas, he's such a godly guy. Oh, I know. And what a generous man. He's always giving. He gives in everything he does. He's awesome. He's he's always giving to other people. He's an amazing, godly man. I think his reputation preceded him. I think this offering was not the first time that we see or should know that this this guy was a godly guy. I think he did this. He gave his all in everything, not just in the monetary giving. I think he gave it all in serving. He gave it all in his worship. He gave it all in everything he did, not just in this one act that we hear about right now. 
And then we go to the flip side and we go back to that wall and we're a fly and we're listening and we hear these people say, Ananias. <gasps> There's like a hush in the room. And then someone goes, oh, that Ananias. He can't be trusted. And then someone goes, I know. And you know what? You think Ananias is a mess? Well, you should meet his wife, Sapphira. She's a hot mess. Those two can't be trusted. I think that if Barnabas had this reputation, and that's why Luke shows him, I choose to think that these two probably had a reputation as well. And I think it preceded them. I think, I think that's why Luke chose them. Let's follow along. I'm going to read Acts 5, 1 through 11. Let's see exactly what happens with Ananias and Sapphira. It says, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have, lied, you have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard this. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what, what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to him, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband at the door are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her outside beside her husband. And great fear came upon, upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Wow. <laughs> That's some harsh discipline. Harsh discipline. You know, as Acts 5 opens up, Barnabas is, we see that Ananias, like Barnabas, he's selling a piece of property. But that's about the only place this comparison matches up. Because instead of doing like Barnabas did, Ananias decided ahead of time to take part only part of the proceeds of this church, of this, of this sale, and give part of it to the church. And he decided that with his wife, Sapphira. And they decided they'd tell the church that it was the whole amount. So they lied about what they were giving to the church. Now, the first thing we need to address, it wasn't so much that they kept back what they kept back, because there was nowhere, no rule in the church that said, if you sell your property, you have to give everything to the church. They didn't say that anywhere. The sin was, in fact, that they lied about it in their hearts. Specifically, what did it say? They lied to God. Saying that they said, we too have sold some land and we're going to give all the proceeds to the church just like Barnabas. When they actually weren't doing that very thing. They had decided ahead to keep it back for themselves. Their sin wasn't against the church. Their sin was against God. Specifically, Peter says it was against the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira's sharing was motivated by pride. This couple wanted the glory and the claim, but they didn't want the sacrifice. They weren't so much giving to relieve the poor as so much to fatten up their own egos. You know, I thought it was interesting, though, that how it was described, their giving. It was described exactly like the giving of Barnabas was. It said they laid it at the feet of the apostles. It was exactly like how Barnabas did it. 
Their sharing was an outward and a very public giving. And it appeared on all practical purposes to be very appropriate as well. But it was actually a lie, and it was a lie to God. It was a sin against God. And Jesus names what Ananias and Sapphira did. He calls it hypocrisy. See, the word hypocrisy, the definition for that word is wearing a mask. It's when we try to be something, try to perceive that something we're really not. It's a deliberate deception. And for them, they were trying to appear more spiritual than they actually were. And hypocrisy is a destructive force in the community of God's people. It can tear God's, a group of God's people apart. There's a Christian minister named George McDonald, and he says this about hypocrisy. He says, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look and not be what one is not. Listen to that. Half of the misery in the world is trying to look and not be what one is not. And that was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. They were trying to look instead of be something they were not. And it cost them their lives. They paid dearly with it. Ananias and Sapphira's sharing was based on a complete lie. It was hypocrisy. So they so badly wanted to be acclaimed like Barnabas that they were willing to lie about their gift to the church. And look in verse 3 of Acts 5. Peter asked Ananias this question. He said, why has Satan filled your hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? You know, I think Peter was completely guided by the Holy Spirit that he was able to recognize this. And I think he was quick, very quick to acknowledge that this lie was from the father of all lies. It was from Satan. And and I I think that He recognized it, and he called it. And he's saying that Satan is the father of all lies. Listen to what an author, uh, Oliver Holmes, says. He says, sin has many tools, but a lie is a handle that fits most of them. He's saying that that almost every sin is at the base of it is a lie. Look at what what Jesus says to the Jewish leaders in John 8, 44, about um, the father of all lies. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan knows that the surest way to divide a body of believers is not to attack it from the outside. Because honestly, if you attack believers from the outside, what do they do? They band even tighter together, don't they? Satan knows that the best way to divide believers is to get in there and stir up dissension right among his people. And because we're Christ followers, we're Christians, we're all in danger of being used for his purposes. And Paul tells us that very thing. If you look in Ephesians 6, 10, 13 on your verse sheet, Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesus, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day what having done all, and having done all to stand firm. See, what we have to realize is that Paul isn't writing this letter to the unbelievers in Ephesus. He's writing this to the believers in Ephesus. 
the Christians. And he's warning them that they have to put on the whole armor of God so that they aren't used by the father of lies. Satan wants to stir up dissension with believers, within believers. And it has to start. The unity has to start there so that can't happen. Now, I'm sure that most of you, as you read through these first 11 verses, you got to the end and you, there was one word on your mind, and that was harsh. I mean, seriously, I even thought, whew, that could have been me. That was some harsh discipline. I mean, it begs the question, why did God deal so harshly with these two believers, these two early believers? I mean, on the surface, it appears that they just lied about a business transaction and about what they were given to the church. It seems pretty harmless on the outside. But if you start to dig a little deeper, and I did this because this really bothered me, and I learned that that there's this one thing that God does consistently, and that is that he deals severely with sin when that sin comes at the beginning of a new period in our salvation history, kind of in our salvation timeline. And I believe he does that as warnings to all of us to protect us from the trappings of sin. You know, we see this very thing back when the tabernacle is erected, and it's in Leviticus 10. If you remember the tabernacle, that's where the Israelites would bring their offerings to the Lord, and they would make sacrifices. It was Their sin sacrifices were done at the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was very important to God because this was where, and, and on our timeline, the, the Israelites, all of the salvation timeline, this was important. God wanted them to catch because this is where they were going to make that connection between the fact that there would be a sin substitute coming for them. Because they would be doing this, bringing sacrifice to the tabernacle to substitute for their sins. It was preparing their hearts and preparing their minds. And it was tilling up that field that when Christ came, they would recognize that he was now their sin substitute. They didn't need that lamp. So this was important on the timeline. And he dealt harshly with what happened. Look at... Look at Leviticus 10, 1 through 2. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out before the Lord, from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. See, God was teaching the Israelites what was and wasn't appropriate when it came to their sin offerings. And it was important for them to know that for their timeline of salvation, that they would be able to understand Christ when he came. His quick judgment in Nahab and Abihu taught them he's very serious about how we present ourselves in front of him. He desires, he not only desires, he demands our complete honesty. He wants our complete humility. And he needed them to know this. We also see God dealing aggressively with a man named Achan in Joshua 7. I read something that said the story of Ananias is to the book of Acts... What the story of Achan is to the book of Joshua. Because both narratives are, act, are an act of deceit that interrupts the victorious progress of God's people. In Joshua 7, you remember, they just brought down, they're victorious, they just brought down Jericho. They've been marching around and the walls had fallen. They had been instructed not to take one thing for themselves. They were to take all the wealth and everything they, they brought in from Jericho. And it was to be offered as a first fruits offering to the Lord. None of it for themselves. But in Joshua 7.1, we see this. It says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. 
See, I believe that, the, that God judged the sin of Ananias and Sapphira so harshly because this church was brand new. And he wanted it to be known that he was not going to tolerate deception because he knew just how destructive deception could be within the church body. And the death of Ananias and Sapphira led that early church to a reverence and a godly fear. And it teaches us that sharing with wrong motives, it can lead to God's displeasure and God's discipline. Because, you know, as much as we have God's grace, we have to remember something. He is a holy God. He is the God of the universe, ladies. And he deserves our reverence, our godly fear, and our godly respect. And this early church, they learned it. They had learned that, that God's holiness and so, his sovereignty it demanded their godly fear and their reverence. And, I, and from that day on, I am sure that the story of Ananias and Sapphira crossed their mind every time they came to the church to offer an offering. Or even if they came, not even monetary offering, they offered their service. I guarantee you they remembered Ananias and Sapphira every single time. Because they knew God was serious about this matter. And that it would be handed down, this very truth is going to be handed down from generation to generation. And I know that's true, but guess what? We're here studying it today. That's how important this point was. I want, to follow, I want you to follow along. We're going to read what happens after all of that. And I'm going to read 12 through 16 in chapter 5. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick to the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, I have to admit, when I first read this portion of it, I, I really had a hard time seeing how this tied into what we just read. In fact, I felt like we could have camped back on those other verses and studied that for a week and, and came back to this an, another time. But the more I looked at it, I realized that Acts 4:32 through 5:11 was teaching us how to share within the church. And, and it was telling us how to and how not to share. And I think that part was very important to God because he was training these early Christians to guard against attacks within the church of deception and lies and anything that could dis, to destroy them as a uni, unified body because he knew what was coming. The attacks on the outside of the church were going to get more severe and more fierce and they needed to be unified. So with that in mind, I believe that God is giving us a clear picture as well of what sharing outside the church is going to look like. In fact, it's obvious to me as we read this next portion that the apostles are going to allow nothing to stop them from spreading the gospel out into a lost world. Nothing was going to stop them. In these verses, we see that they're busy doing that very thing and they're doing signs and wonders and they're caring for the sick and needy on a regular basis. And apparently, they didn't discriminate. Anyone they brought to them, they healed them or they, they cared for them. And it was, people were coming from all around the town. They were, now they were starting to come from outside of Jerusalem. And that's exciting. That's exciting because don't you remember back in Acts 1 what Jesus said? He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's happening. 
That to-be-continued story is happening, and you see it. At first, it was kind of in Jerusalem, and now we read that they were coming from outside of Jerusalem in and bringing people in, and, and it's spreading outside the walls of Jerusalem. And guess what? The story is to be continued. It's being spread through us. We're the ones now. We're taking it out to the end of the earth. We're part of that to-be-continued story. That should excite you. We're part of Acts. It just keeps on going. We're, part of, we're, we're right there with Paul and everybody else and Peter, everybody that's spreading the good news of Christ. We get to be a part of that. And let's continue. Let's go on to 17 through 21 and see exactly what happens with the apostles. It says, But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of his life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. So here we go. We saw this coming, didn't we? we probably, you probably guessed this is exactly what was going to happen. If you remember last week, Amy taught us um, in Acts 4, 17 through 18, Peter and John had been called before the council. I'm sure they had a revolving door going in that place. And they had been told this. They had said, but in, in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But they did it anyway. They went out and started teaching about Christ. It's because they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's like they had the Holy Spirit cape on. Nothing was going to stop them from going to do what they were going to do. And guess what it bought them? It bought them tickets to three hots and a cot. They're right back in public prison. These guys probably had a jail cell with their name on it. This is one of only many days these guys were, nights they were going to spend in prison. They did it with great joy. You know, I, I think we have to understand the reason they were constantly being pulled into this before the council. It wasn't that they were only teaching in direct contrast to what the Jewish leaders were teaching. But see, these apostles realized that these guys were right. And this guy, Jesus, they're preaching about that is risen from the dead. He was actually the Messiah. Guess what that meant for them? That meant they had just killed the Messiah, the one that had been promised for years. These guys were terrified for this to even be true. And, and I'm sure it, they, they thought about it late at night. Do you think these guys are right? They did not want these two guys to keep on going. So they continually would pull them in front and throw them in the prisons. And they were just hoping when they got in that prison cell that this, this idea, this movement they were on would soon fade away. But, but we see that doesn't happen. You know, during the night, God sends an angel to release them right out from under the guard's eye, or their noses. I don't, I don't think he even... I don't, they didn't even know they were gone. They were still sleeping. By the time these guys woke up, the guards were stretching. They were already at the temple teaching again. I just thought it was... <laughs> It made me think of Deb talking about how exciting this is going to be. This is exciting stuff. These guys were in jail, and now they're out teaching, and the guards don't even know what's happening. And instead of going to get a shave and a hot breakfast after they had a little nap at the, at the public jail, oh, they, they didn't do that. They immediately responded to God's command to share the gospel. And we see them right back at it. At daybreak, it says, they're in the temple, and they're teaching about Jesus to the lost in Jerusalem. Now I know what we're about to learn about these Jewish leaders, what we've already known, you're going to 
guess what's going to happen next, right? Let's go ahead and read on just a little bit more and see just how well received these guys are the next morning in the temple. I'm going to start at 21b. Now, when the high priest came and those were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in the name, yet you have filled... Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us but Peter and the apostles answered we must obey God rather than men the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on the tree I'm sure that didn't gain him any friends God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins and we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him So, they're brought before the council yet again, and I, I'm not surprised that they, you know, haven't warmed up to this idea yet. I was a little surprised, though, that the council didn't press them a little bit harder about how they actually got out of their prison cells. I, I kind of felt like that was one of those, you can't handle the truths kind of moments. They didn't want to know, and they didn't want anybody else to know what had happened. There's these kind of just glazed right over that part of it and moved right along. And the apostles, when they're questioned, did you notice they didn't choose to, to, make a, to, to change their story? They didn't lighten the story at all. In fact, I felt like it got a little more harsh, their, their gospel. It was a truth, and it didn't change. They didn't try to save their own hineys. They obeyed God, and they trusted him with the consequences. And they stood firm on the gospel of truth. This, their story hadn't changed. Not even, they didn't even give a diplomatic answer. You know, one that might have made everybody kind of like them a little bit more and maybe saved their bottoms and they wouldn't have gone to jail or they weren't going to be killed. But see, they weren't just old, plain old diplomats. They're ambassadors for Christ. And their message stayed the same. They're saying, these Jewish leaders, you've condemned Jesus to death. But he rose from the dead and he's sitting at the right hand of his father and he's judging all, living and the dead. See, when faced with opposition, our story shouldn't change either. We should stand firm on the gospel of truth and we have to obey God with that and trust him with the consequences. In fact, everything we do in our life should point others back to Christ. Paul, who, who we will learn a lot about later on in Acts, suffered greatly for the Lord. Look what he says to the Philippians in chapter 127. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that when whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Words and actions all should point to Christ. Now, I'm going to finish up reading the last um, few verses up to 42. And we're going to see how the uh, council receives this uh, message from him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, come take, 
Take care of what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of a man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and they had, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the, the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had count, were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Okay, we see them here in front of the council, and I guess this council had probably heard this message for the umpteenth time, and I don't think they've yet warmed up to it. In fact, I think it only served to enrage these guys, and they so badly just wanted to kill them and get them out of their way. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, an expert in Jewish law, he actually is one of the teachers of Saul, who we're going to read about later on, Paul, he decides to reason with the council, and though he uses some very poor logic, I think, God used him to save the apostles' lives. And I, and I think it was poor logic mainly because he rejected, he had obviously rejected the truth of Jesus because he had already thrown him in with this group of rebels. Remember he talked about the two that, that came along and had some followers and they kind of fell by the wayside. He, I think he felt like the same thing was going to happen to Jesus, that he would eventually just fade away as well. Now, he may be an expert in Jewish law, but boy, did he get this one wrong. He missed the mark by a million miles. See, he was advising these guys to seek some neutral ground on a life and death, in, a life and death issue. And, and that's exactly what the council did. Instead of killing the apostles, they beat them, they commanded them not to speak about Jesus, and they let them go. After which we see the apostles, what are they doing? Rejoicing. They're rejoicing because they found it pure joy to suffer for Christ. See, to them, the opposition of men that they had come up against, to the apostles, it meant the approval of God. And that gave them honor, and they were privileged to do it. They trusted that God was going to deliver them, whether through their suffering or from their suffering. And they were willing to do whatever he wanted them to do. You know, we may never be imprisoned for our faith, and we may never be beat to within an inch of our life for our faith in Jesus Christ. But we may come up against opposition. We may be made fun of, mocked. It happens in the workplace. It happens in school. It happens in our colleges. It happens in our circle of friends. It can happen in your extended family, and it can even happen in your own household. Opposition. It's bound to happen. Look what Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 10 through 11. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. God says he'll bless us when we're persecuted, when we're being opposed. And as Acts 5 concludes, in the Jewish council, they're probably, I just envisioned them high-fiving and slapping each other on the back. They thought they'd done a great job. Everybody was happy. They... Uh, we see the apostles, you know, what are they doing? Same thing. They're not stopping. They had a job to do. They were to keep on doing it. And they intended to keep on doing that all the way as long as God enabled them to do it. They weren't going to stop. 
And, and I thought in the last part, it says that they went, if you look at 44, it says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. You know, although they took care of the physical needs, the sick and the needy, I think the apostles knew, without a doubt, the most important thing they could give to a lost world was the gospel of Christ. So they made doing that their very number one priority every single day, no matter what was happening, prison, beatings, anything. They witnessed, and they used every single witnessing opportunity to its maximum, and they came, they gave everything, no matter where or what they were doing. See, we are witnesses too. Amy told us this last week. We're not just witnesses. We, we don't just witness. We are witnesses. Our lives, we're witnesses. We can either be a bad witness or we can be a good witness through our lives. But you know what else? We can also be a neutral, lukewarm witness in our lives. Our witness can either bring people closer and, and give them, bring them to a saving, uh, saving uh, faith in Christ Jesus or our witness can drive them away or you know what? Our witness can just be here all the time and it never makes them go either direction because it doesn't seem to be quite so important. I challenge each one of you this week to ask God to guide you as you go about your daily life and ask him to open your eyes and your ears to any opportunity out there to share the good news of Christ and then pray that he would make you be bold and he would give you his words and that the Holy Spirit would give you the power you need to say exactly what those people need to hear. And trust me, if you do that... If you make sharing Jesus your number one priority every day, you will never lack for open doors. Never. There will always be opportunities for you to do that very thing. Please pray with me. Precious Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that that you just remind us of, of Christ's resurrection. It's such a foundation for us, Lord, and that we are powered by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us be bold, that you would help each one of us take your word to a lost world and we would not um, allow busyness, allow fear, allow anything to stop us from doing that number one job. Father, we love you and we love your word. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.